Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints renounced the practice of plural marriage in 1890. In the mid to late 19th century, however, the heyday of Mormon polygamy, as many as three out of every ten Mormon women became polygamous wives. In her book, The Polygamous Wives Writing Club, out recently from Oxford University Press, Paula Kelly Harline delves deep into the diaries and autobiographies of 29 such women, providing a rare window into the lives they led and revealing their views and experiences of polygamy. She considers the questions, were these women content with their sacrifice? Did the benefits of polygamous marriage for the Mormons outweigh the human toll it required and the embarrassment it continues to bring? She says that although the mainstream Mormon church washed its hands of polygamy more than 100 years ago, you can still hear the voices of polygamous wives who wrote their stories. And in their stories, the conflict between love and duty, like attempting to float in azure skies while gravitationally forced to work a plot of land instead, unfold in technicolor. Paula Kelly Harline has been teaching college writing for over 20 years, University of Idaho, Brigham Young University, Utah Valley University. She's also worked as a freelance writer and artist. She lives in Provo with her husband, Craig. And a pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, let's see. It sounds a little bit uh, faint. Do we, do we have you? Uh, Is that better? Yeah, that's a little better. Okay. I'll speak up more. Okay. Um, so, very interesting book. Uh, your goal, I think, was to choose average women, commonplace women, not not women of famous Mormon husbands. Yes, and I think that's one of my main contributions, is to choose obscure polygamous wives. So I chose 29 of them by the following criteria, not married to a general authority, uh, didn't flee to Canada or Mexico, married between 1850 and 1890, um, stayed in the church because I was curious to see how they reconciled uh, their experiences with their religious beliefs. Yeah, so I was interested in the regular country roads of polygamy, what and it was like to be a polygamous wife in an ordinary uh, you know, country setting. And you you dived into the 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 words, the thoughts of the, these women themselves. I wonder before we get going here. I wonder if you could, uh, if you have your book with you, if you could read just the the paragraph that you, even before you you know start your welcome your deduction. First wife Emma Nielsen, St. George, Utah, 1889. Oh yes. Very poignant uh, paragraph and the sort of is typical of what you find, I think, in a lot of these journals. She wrote, After I got my precious little ones in bed, I took a walk in the moonlight, all the while wondering where my husband, my precious F.G., was. A sweet response would be that he is in Arizona doing his duty to his other family, but then I often wonder if he is doing his duty to his family here in St. George. How pleased I would be if he would step in administer to our wants, soothe the cries of my four little ones, and do a father's part. They have looked forward to the time so long that they would see their pa that they begin to think they have no pa. I feel heartbroken myself. My heart is so sore, and who in all this world can heal it except my dear F.G.? One word from his precious lips at this moment could do it. I love him as I do my own life. And when can I linger by his side as I once used to? That's uh, it's very poignant, and I, I think uh, quite typical. That uh, gets us into an interesting point you make in your book. These were women and men um, living what it was seen, at least by the larger world, as something very radical. And to them, in their hearts, it's very radical. They were, they were raised and swimming in a world of, uh, of monogamy. Exactly. We have, I don't know, I think we have the impression that in the 19th century, polygamy was normal and it was open and pretty much accepted and that uh, Mormondom was a um, polygamous society. And yes, they openly practiced polygamy and there were, uh, most of the leaders of the church had polygamous families and there were polygamous families in town. However, yes, they 
had a monogamous mindset from centuries of tradition. And in addition to that, they had assumptions about romantic love and that that, that that was the norm for marriage. So when that came up against polygamy, even though they might religiously accept it or for periods of time um, feel okay about it or comfortable with it, really a, a lot of the time they didn't feel that comfortable with it. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me about, the, the, I guess, the genesis for the book. Your husband got you the journals of Mary Jane Tanner. You, and you write uh, in the first part of the book, you can, you can still see a, a cabin there in Provo that uh, Mary Jane lived in. Uh, yes. Um, her writings, and as you said, the book is based on 29 polygamous wives who wrote their stories. So they either kept diaries or kept autobiographies. And so in graduate school in the late eight, um, 1980s, I did a research paper uh, looking for feminism in these little circles of what I thought were sister wives, which it turns out of the 29 women, only one of them referred to the other wives as, as, as sister wives. So that wasn't as common as I thought. But I was looking um, for women in the same family who I thought would have feminist ideals such as independence, female community, opportunity, and power. And I thought that was, you know, pretty cool that they lived that way. But as I continued to research, um, gathered more diaries. About half of them are published, by the way, in some form or another, and the other half are archival. Um, yeah, I, I found that they weren't so much interested in the relationships with the other wives in the family as they were interested in their relationship with their husbands. Hmm. That that was the, I guess that was the ideal they were raised on, right? That's the ideal that really was in their heart, despite this doctrine that they they were at least were trying to believe in. Yes, that's a good way to put it. I think it was in their hearts, <laughs> and. Uh, even in situations where, uh, like I'm thinking of one uh, wife whose husband went to prison and the younger wife was living with her, when their husband went to prison, the younger wife went home to her family. You know, even though the older wife was hoping she would stay there and help her and so they wouldn't be so lonesome, you know, so she wouldn't be so lonesome by herself. Um, and the younger wife said that it was just too hard from her for, on her not to have their husband there, which I found really curious. That wasn't what I was expecting. I thought that they would have um, stronger feelings about the other wives in the family. Hmm. You have a chapter on justifications for polygamy. I, I wonder if we could get into how these women understood the, the, their, their beliefs, as, at least being preached by church leaders. And part of this ties into your salvation is tied up in this, I think, right? Um, yes. The, in eight, uh, yes, in 1852, pub, um, polygamy was, or plural marriage as they called it, was publicly announced um, at a men's session around general conference time. And Orson Pratt gave a very long doctrinal theological speech about the benefits of polygamy and how it connected with uh, building mighty kingdoms, uh, how it would alleviate the sin of adultery around the world, and how it would help to welcome more children uh, more quickly into Mormondom. And B.Y. Uh, sorry, Brigham Young uh, backed him up, of course, uh, and then began sort of, you know, the speeches locally too about uh, about polygamy. Um, yes, they had a feeling. I would say the wives themselves mostly had a feeling that this was a way to build up the church, um, and yes. 
some of them felt that their salvation depended on it. Some of them went into it expressly because they felt that that would be the way to achieve the most greatness in the afterlife. So, but some of them, you say, that others. What, what were other reasons why wives would be willing to take on a, you know, second or third wife? I think maybe just falling in love with the husband. <laughs> um, yeah, I was a little surprised that uh, definitely not in all the diaries would you find expressions of a strong belief or you know, a, a prayer that was confirmed by God that they felt like this is what they were supposed to do. Although in some, they do say that. Uh, some of them, it just seemed to be the way that it went for them. For example, a couple of them came across the plains and ended up marrying the captains of their handcart companies. And that seemed to be a convenient way to be integrated into a family when they arrived in Salt Lake. Uh, one of them wrote that although she had offers for monogamous marriage, she was impressed by her husband's uh, leadership on the plains, and she wanted to throw in her lot with his, you know, basically that, that she loved him. Hmm. That's interesting. So she, she, she gave up offers of monogamous marriage to, for this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to be a, probably not the first wife. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, on down, down the road. Um, for for a first wife, this is especially difficult, I think, and, and one of your chapters is headed with uh, the attitude of one of these wives. She says, I was perfectly willing, but still it was hard. Right. Um, well, they were, you know, by and large, these 29 women were uh, practicing Mormon women, uh, faithful Mormon women. Um, so, yes, they wanted to accept it maybe on religious or doctrinal uh, lines, but as you said earlier, just couldn't quite in their hearts accept it all the time. So they may they might make progress, you know, they might say okay, or, you know, just concede when their husband presented it to them. Um, in some ways, it might have been socially acceptable, especially at first, to be in a polygamous family because the general authorities were uh, taking more wives, and it, per- it perhaps said something about how faithful your family was, if you were willing to take that on. Uh, yeah, but then the reality of it was usually difficult. And, yeah. You know, the first wives... Um, had to, uh, you know, even just having their husbands come to them and present the idea and suggest the idea that they were thinking of such and such girl or woman, you know, could be a little bit of a, of a shock to them, you know, to realize that their husband had noticed a, another girl or woman. But then in other cases, there would be a girl working in their home, helping them around the birth of their baby or just hired by them, and maybe she would join the family and, uh, you know, might seem a little more natural, but at the same time I'm thinking of one case where Lydia Brinkerhoff's um, husband said that he was going to marry the girl who had been working in their house, and so she helped the girl get her clothes ready to go for her wedding, and it was just after she, Lydia had had a baby. Um, and she said, I watched her leave with my husband, which is sort of poignant, you know, the, the words, my husband, mm-hmm. feeling like she, was, you know, that <laughs> she felt that he was hers yeah. and that she was having to share him. If you just joined us, we are talking uh, with the author of a new book, interesting new book, The Polygamous Wives Writing Club. It's based on uh, diaries and autobiographies of 29 uh, average uh, Mormon women in the heyday of polygamy of the mid to late 19th century. And Paula Kelly Harline uh, chose these women thus uh, purposely. She didn't go for the famous uh, men or women or families. She wanted to get to sort of the, the average uh, polygamous family to, to delve into this uh, practice and how the women felt. We'll uh, talk more about this following this brief break. Ernesto Ceroli came to Africa to fight hunger. 
so he grew tomatoes. And when the tomatoes were nice and ripe and red, overnight, some 200 hippos came out from the river and they ate everything. <laughs> I'm Guy Raz. How not to fight poverty and other stories of the haves and have-nots. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu of a Mediterranean salad with artichoke hearts, sun-dried tomatoes, and feta. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the mid to late 19th century, the heyday of Mormon polygamy, as many as three out of every ten Mormon women became polygamous wives. In her book, The Polygamous Wives Writing Club, Paula Kelly Harline delves into the diaries and autobiographies of 29 such women, providing a window into their lives and revealing their views and experiences of polygamy. She considers the questions, were these women content with their sacrifice? And did the benefits of polygamous marriage for the Mormons outweigh the human toll it required and the embarrassment it continues to bring? Talking with Paula Kelly Harline on the program today. If you have a question or comment, we would love it if you would join the program. The way to do that is by telephone, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you have uh, history in your family. You've heard uh, stories from, uh, from your uh, ancestors or just uh, curious about the, the practice. Later in the program, we'll bring this forward to today as well. Um, and you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. It's interesting, you, uh, at one point in the book, you compare and contrast um, Angelina Farley and Henrietta Williams, the ones at Farmer's Wife, there's a doctor's wife. The one, uh, what you have is her diary. The other one, it's an autobiography. And, and so the autobiography... I guess in, in, would would colored somewhat, right? You, uh, this woman's writing maybe toward the end of her life, uh, and she's saying perhaps in part what she thinks people want to hear. The diary is sort of unvarnished. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and of the twenty nine women I studied, about half wrote diaries and about half wrote autobiographies. And yes, if. As you suggested, Henrietta Williams uh, wrote her autobiography as an older woman. By then, the sec- so Henrietta was a first wife, and the second wife had been dead for 17 years. And so, you know, in, with perspective, uh, looking back over her life, um, uh, maybe just more a tame feeling about uh, what it had been like and and brief examples of some of the things that they experienced, whereas Angelina Farley kept a journal where she wrote lots of fiery details. Uh, She was very jealous of the other wife who was living in the same house, and she wasn't uh, afraid to write down her feelings, maybe uh, in an effort to cope. She could write what she was feeling or, you know, provide the details about the circumstances, uh, the run-ins they would have, what she didn't like about the other wife. And it's quite valuable to have both uh, diaries and autobiographies. Uh, at one point, I think you're referring to the diaries, you used the phrase transgressive writing, I think. I don't know if that's your term or hers, but it captures the the, the, the feeling that that conflict at the, at the heart of this, right? She's She's laying bare her feelings, but at the same time, maybe she's not supposed to have these feelings. Yes, um, that term comes from Laura Bush's book, and um, she analyzes a couple of polygamous wives. And I like that term, transgressive writing, because... uh, Yes, I mean, there's, there's lots of autobiographical theory about women's writings, and generally women, whether they're conscious of it or not, or are uninte- perhaps unintentionally writing for an audience that they think will accept the way they've presented things. And uh, oftentimes I could see in the writings the, the wives' efforts to show balance 
um, to not seem too harsh or too strong. Angelina Farley, you know, just pretty much never lets up. She doesn't like the situation. She realizes she's getting the bad end of the deal, and she's just going to tell us all about it. And, uh, yeah, I, I said that um, she might seem like she's not a good Christian woman to be so uh, harsh on the other wife or so unsettled about what was going on between them. But on the other hand, in some ways, she's a good Christian woman who won't put up with the excesses of polygamy and will go tell it on the mountain mm -hmm. what she's experiencing and what she's going through. So this, uh, I guess, in, in I don't know how deeply many of these women thought, some of them quite deeply in terms of theological terms. Uh, for some of these women, I, I imagine it's, it's a theological struggle. It's a, it's a belief struggle It's because this is so foreign to what they've been raised with, what they're feeling. And uh, so they're trying to hold on to belief as they're going along. Um, a, a couple of them, uh, especially initially, wanted to find out through prayer if, well, I can think of three of them off the top of my head, um, wanted to find out through prayer if they felt that polygamy was from God and if it was for them, and they felt that they got answers that it that it was in one way or another. However, I would say for the most part, they're not, the women are not so much having a theological struggle as just a, uh, they needed comfort from God to manage through their trials. After all, many of them were settling the West at the same time that they were polygamous wives. They had lots of other concerns um, and were working very hard and kind of adding on top of it the worries that came with their triangular, you know, love relationships. Uh, you know, it was a lot on them. And it, it is striking how many of them sought out through prayer and through God um, help and comfort to make it through the trials that daily beset their paths, as one mm. of them wrote. Yeah, I suppose that's you know that is true to life, isn't it? You're you're just trying to live life, <laughs> and for them it was, you know, they're trying to carve out settlements in the wilderness and and so forth. And oh, by the way, this uh, new polygamous lifestyle is just one more thing. Yes, the coming and going of their of their husbands. Um, you know, is he going to go to the farm with the other wife? Would he be? Uh, coming home and helping her, you know, the woman who was riding. Um, yes, I mean, where her, where the husband spent their time, if they were with the other wife, was the other wife in the same house. Um, it, I was interested to find out that most of them uh, wanted and had their own homes. I suppose that was... Um, a little easier for them to have their own space, but at the same time that meant that their husbands had to share uh, time away, which was difficult for them sometimes. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could tell me about uh, Rachel Simmons. Uh, I was very interested in reading this this history. In some ways it's kind of like a soap opera, but in other yeah. ways it, it, um, it shows that, you know, in some ways there's ups and downs in life, and you... you marry a fellow and you might have other wives, but uh, that fellow might not turn out so great. Um, so Rachel Simmons, she, she marries, a, he was an actor, I think, right? Right. At least originally, and then he got into some other things uh, later on. Um, he took a second wife, and that didn't work out. Right. Um, her name was Emma Bloxham, and Rachel Simmons, the first wife, wrote that he brought Emma home and gave her Rachel's bedroom and all of the best and everything in the house. I think he was trying to impress this woman I'm not sure if he met her through the theater or what, but within a year, Emma had left and gone with another man to Carson City, so Rachel was glad about that. She said that she felt that he was just infatuated with Emma and that he would come back to her in the end. But then, undaunted, her husband started dating other women, but ended up marrying Rachel's sister. And so the three of them, Rachel and her sister and their husband, lived in the same house 
from then on, and they lived right down in um, Salt Lake City next to the social hall, um, not far from Temple Square. So Rachel and her sister Annette, I guess, uh, right. there was an advantage. They were sisters, uh, not just sister-wives. Uh, they got along well, and I, yes. I think better than, than a lot of other polygamous families. Yes, and there are two cases out of the 29 where husbands married the wife of, I'm sorry, married a sister of their wife, and those biological sisters got along quite well. There's no evidence that any of them argued with each other or were jealous of each other. They were mostly supportive of each other and and lived together at least part of the time. Hmm. Uh, there's problems with the husband eventually. Uh, I think he turns yes. to, to drink, right? Yes. <laughs> he. Uh, it seems like he was an alcoholic, and even though he was, he was working for Brigham Young at one point but uh, thought he was meant for bigger things, went on to another job, but he had a good wage, but he started drinking and just kind of went downhill and... So the Simmons family living in this little house downtown uh, Salt Lake uh, were quite poor. They had to move um, all of Nett and all of Rachel's children into one room because they could only uh, afford to have coal or a fire in that one room to keep warm. And actually their little children collected um, uh, coal along the streets and so forth you know, to try to um, get a fire. Uh, and then... Rachel writes that it, now Joe, he was drinking and just generally not healthy. He spent long hours working and then also acting on the theater late at night and uh, and drinking. He wasn't very well, and he died. I'm thinking he was in his 50s. And um, Rachel wrote that what she and Nett passed through during this time cannot be imagined by anyone, but they evidently helped each other a lot to wait on him and nurse him and take care of their children together. Hmm. Now, the idea, we talked about this a little earlier in the hour. I think the ideal was you would have a husband and you would have sister wives. And, of course, that term is bandied about with regard to modern polygamy a lot. But sister wives, I think it was the ideal that the wives would get along with each other like sisters. Yes, I... and. Uh, yes, and I, the, the book is particularly about these marriage relationships, both with the other wives and with the husbands. Um, so, yeah, it just, I was just surprised to find that there were not rich friendships between the wives for the most part and that they would treat each other mostly respectfully, like they might another sister from Relief Society, for example. But they just weren't very close. Now, if they were living in the same house and they could strike some kind of labor equality where they were um, really helping each other out and sharing the work, a lot of times, in that, in those cases, it would go better because then, of course, you know, the, the housework would be cut down from just having one wife having to do all of it to having, you know, two or three of them working together on it. And some of them wrote really interesting details about how they divided their work, um, you know, how one, uh, two of them in one house made uh, just pounds and pounds and pounds of potato starch every fall. Some of them shared, you know, the sewing, the milking, the uh, washing the children, mending clothes, all of the things that had to be done, they would share together. Uh, in one case, there were three sister wives in the Cox family in the St. George area who were very, very close and just had a an amazing domestic routine. Each of the wives knew what they were supposed to do and did it, and they were very loyal to, to each other. But uh, I think maybe the majority, it, it seems like, at least reading the, this this book, didn't work out that well. And I, I wonder if you, if you thought about why. Is it just is human nature? Was it this ideal that people, I think, still we still have of this monogamous ideal, romantic love? What... Uh, why do you think many of these didn't work out, according to the ideal? I think that 
you know, it might be great to share work during the day. It might be great to have family prayer together or to have a, a sort of a common cause or to sit in the living room uh, near a fire and talk to each other. But thanks to the intimacy of uh, bedtime and sexuality, the doors literally and you know, figuratively closed out some of the wives. And so it, it's just a system that can't help privilege the husband, I suppose, in that way. So it's, you know, it might seem inclusive, but in some ways it's exclusive, and you're kind of, um, you know, left out because of that. So you, um, and then, you know, there, yeah, I think just feelings of je- jealousy would creep in or um, not sure if they could uh, completely trust the other li- wife to have their back or just knowing that most of the wives were interested in having a relationship with the husband. Um, so. And so you didn't have that. Most of the wives were left feeling they didn't get that emotional connection that they wanted with their husband yeah uh they really wanted that and i feel like most of the wives worked towards having that emotional connection with their husbands actually mm-hmm. yeah of course you could say that about you know marriages today uh with with you know one wife and one husband i guess it would put strain and stresses if you had more than one wife yes but um Catherine danes who's an important uh, scholar on the subject of polygamy uh, once pointed that out to me, that not all modern monogamous marriages are great either. You know, there's often a distance or emotional distance or jealousies between in any marriage. So, you know, perhaps that comes along with marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just regular people trying to work this out, and there's additional strains here. Right. We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, I want you to tell me a little bit more about uh, Mary Jane Tanner. Very interesting. This uh, She happened to marry a husband who became successful financially, um, but but there were some there were some troubles when a, when a second wife came into the picture. Um, more following the break. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ros Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss... Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities, online at utahhumanities.org. And by the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring love, death, and everything in between. Information on the festival's 2014 season, including works by Jane Austen, Stephen Sondheim, and William Shakespeare at bard.org. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about polygamy, the heyday of polygamy, uh, mid to late 19th century. Paula Kelly Harline has uh, written a very interesting new book. It's uh, out from Oxford University Press called The Polygamous Wives Writing Club. Uh, she uses as the foundation for this uh, journals, diaries, autobiographies of 29 uh, sort of average uh, polygamous wives. Uh, in in Utah and surrounding areas, and she asked the questions, were the women content with their sacrifice? Did the benefits of polygamous marriage for the Mormons outweigh the human toll required? And the embarrassment continues to bring very interesting look into the lives of these women. Um, And you're welcome to join the conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, with your question or comment, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We're also on Facebook, Utah Public Radio, and uh, we are on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. So, Paula Kelly Harline, I wonder if we could uh, get into that central question, one of the questions you uh, pose in the book. Were these women content with their sacrifice? I guess it was a conflict, and you see that in the autobiographies. They're looking back on their lives, and they're wrestling with this question. 
I would say, uh, in general, uh, they were content with their sacrifice by the end of their lives. I think as time went on and their um, and they got older, they spent a lot of um, effort and got a lot of pride from their children. And I think that they felt that they were raising children in the church and that they were making a contribution that helped lay the foundation of the modern Mormon church. Mm. Uh, so they, they felt they were, they were part of a larger, a larger picture. Yes, uh, yes, mm-hmm. that they had a bigger purpose. Uh, uh, not that many of them talked about the afterlife. If they did mention their purpose, it was it had more to do with uh, building up the church, and they felt that that was their contribution to have. Um, righteous children and lots of children um, to build up the church. Hmm. I wonder if we could bring this forward to today. I imagine if people learn that uh, if you've written a book or you're interested in, you know, you're studying uh, polygamous women, uh, that, that perhaps you're involved in more conversations than the average person would be in about polygamy, and it probably comes forward to today. I wonder if you, uh, starting with, uh, I wonder if you talk with modern-day Mormons. I think there's there's conflicted feelings there. If you talk to maybe an average member of the LDS Church, uh, it range from, I don't even want to think about that, to I'm conflicted, to, I don't know, what, what, do you, what do you hear? I'm surprised when members of the Church today believe that polygamy is an ongoing doctrine of the Church that someday might be brought back, for example, in the afterlife, to me, it's pretty clear through uh, the Book of Mormon, etc., that it was a unique period of time in the 19th century, between you know, for about 50 years. Um, and to me, I see it as probably foundational to building up the church at that time. Um, I don't feel that members of the church today should feel like polygamy is something that they have to grapple with in their own lives. And I'm especially a little saddened, I guess, when I hear women say that they think that's something they might have to encounter at some point. How do do those the women who think they might have to encounter it uh, at some point to it how do you think that makes them feel what how do they feel about it to it in terms of especially their views of themselves um, well it it probably de- depends um on the one hand i got in a conversation at a hair salon once in utah county where a couple of women were pretty viciously defending polygamy, and one of them said, in the afterlife, if one of my girlfriends needs a husband, I will gladly share with her. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, so maybe a kind of uh, pride that I could do this. Uh, On the other hand, I think there are women who, um, I, you know, I don't know how common this is, but maybe it enters their husband's mind that they could have another wife at some point, so that kind of um, is a little bit threatening maybe to a modern marriage. Mm. I have read some online uh, blogs by younger uh, Mormon wives who, um, you know, feel somewhat threatened, feel like they have to grapple with it, uh, and I, di- I just don't feel that way. Mm. I feel like it was... Uh, it was just a, a well in the in the 19th century uh they not only were building up the church by having uh more children and raising them in the church and their children of course would see that their parents were faithful even to the extent that they would be polygamous families uh which was not the majority of the families in the community 
but in addition to that, when the federal government started pressuring them to stop polygamy, then sort of it cemented the Mormons as a group as they talked back and fought back to outsiders who suggested that their lifestyle was not acceptable. And in some ways that made them very, um, you know, loyal to each other and gave them uh, an identity about who they were, that they were unusual, that they were building up the kingdom of God. And uh, so in, in some ways I can see how polygamy did help them become who they were. Do you talk with the... Uh... Mormons, who there, there are quite a few Mormons who have, you know, you don't have to go back too far in your family tree to uh, to find polygamy. Uh, I wonder what uh, feelings are today when you when you find such in your in your ancestry. I think that modern Mormons are usually proud if they have polygamous ancestors. I think that suggests that they. Uh, were had ancestors that were not only pretty tough pioneers to come west, but in addition they took on um, you know extra duties, if you will, to be polygamous families, and that that suggested that they were uh, good Mormons, that they were foundational Mormons, that they did a lot early on to um, you know cr- set up the church and create the church. I think most people take pride in their polygamous ancestors and have a certain curiosity about uh, what their lives were like. Mm. Uh, Broadening out to the the broader culture and looking at uh, fascination with polygamy today, and I think you could call it such, shows like Big Love, and it it just goes on and on. Uh, How do you explain that? Is it just titillation with uh, bedroom stuff? Is it uh, an exotic lifestyle? How do you explain the fascination? Probably both of those things. I haven't studied uh, modern polygamy very much, although I've watched, uh, you know, Sister Wives and so forth. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if it's just because I'm interested in polygamy, but uh, whenever I hear polygamous people interviewed on the radio, I'm always really curious just to hear how they set up their lives. Maybe it's just different from a monogamous marriage, and you're just curious about how they get along together, uh, what their difficulties are, what their strengths are. And as you said, maybe it has something to do with uh, that privilege, I might call it, of the man to uh, have sex with more than one woman. Now, you focused on diaries and autobiographies of women. Um, I don't know if you pick up anything with regard to how the men felt, specifically talking about the mid to late 19th century. Uh, You know, one of the stereotypes out there is that, uh, at least in the broader world, and this was why I think it was one of the twin relics of barbarism in, in the broader culture, that this was just to satisfy the men's sexual desires. Right. Uh, In reality, the husbands had so many responsibilities, and yes, they were able to satisfy sexual desires, and there are uh, details in diaries about loving moments, affectionate moments, caressing, uh, the pleasure of uh, affection and and sex, I guess you would say. Um, But... The men were just stretched thin. I actually um, am quite sympathetic with them. They had to provide so many resources for more than one family. And in many cases, these were not wealthy men. These were not. And, and so the, the polygamous wives themselves, for the most part, helped support themselves and their family. Either they did hat making or sewing or um, uh, whatever they could do, you know, to help provide for their family. Yeah, so the men, um, if they went from house to house, uh, sometimes they would get complaints about not being fair. If they tried to give the distribution of resources over to one wife, sometimes the other wife would complain. Um, on on the other hand, 
they I think they enjoyed their children, um, enjoyed their relationships in many circumstances when they were with a wife. So <laughs> uh, it's pretty complex. Yeah, 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 yeah very, very complex, and, and a lot of problems. As you say, there, there, there were some, you know, instances. Probably many were where it it worked out and it was a happy happy life. I wonder having uh, jumped into these diaries and and there are a lot of complications to put it that way euphemistically. I wonder what uh, that makes you think with regard to uh, people entering polygamy today. There there are many polygamous uh, societies and sort of putting aside the uh, FLDS community and the problems of underage uh, marriages and th- that whole thing. But, you know, things like uh, sister wives and that family, the Cody Brown family, or the people in Centennial Park. I uh, wonder if that makes you scratch your head about why anyone would enter polygamy today or gives you greater empathy to the reasons why they would? Uh, I, I guess I'm mostly interested in the legal implications today. I think it's going to be interesting to see... Um, whether polygamy is legalized, for example. Um, uh, yeah, I, I suppose they, from what I can tell, I think modern polygamists enter polygamy because they believe it was something that Joseph Smith laid out and that it was supposed to be an eternal principle rather than a temporary one. Hmm. We just have uh, about three minutes left. Uh, I'd like to close with uh, where you begin the book, Mary Jane Tanner. Very interesting. She, uh, I think she's fairly young. She marries Myron Tanner. He turns out to be a pretty successful businessman. They go to Pace, and they end up in Provo. And uh, I think he's made bishop, right? And the, the speculation is that's perhaps one reason he took a second wife, to, to set a good example for the ward. Um, so the first year, I think, was, was okay with the, with the two wives. Right. And by the way, the um, husbands in, in, the, uh, in the families I studied, uh, it was not uncommon that they felt pressure to become a polygamist husband because they were a bishop. So that was the case of Mary Jane Tanner's husband, and he married a woman who was a, an immigrant from England, and she moved in with Mary Jane. They both had baby girls at the same time, and she said that they just got along great. And then her husband sent money for the second wife's family to come. And when uh, the second wife's mother moved in with them, she started causing trouble. So they separated houses, but they were right next to each other. And it finally got to the point that uh, Mary Jane kind of banished the other wife from her property. She, the other wife moved about a mile away and ended up drinking and... Mary Jane ended up raising the other wife's children because her husband Myron felt so badly that they were in the environment of a of a drinking mother. Hmm. Yeah, just a, a, a very interesting stories and and many many others uh, can be had in this book, which is the Polygamous Wives Writing Club. Uh, we have a question that's come in on. Uh, Email. This is Dave and Logan. He says, Your guest does not seem familiar with LDS doctrine. Is it not true that in the LDS church a man can be sealed in the temple to more than one woman? Wouldn't this result in a polygamous relationship in the afterlife? I think this is in response to, to your uh, view that uh, this was 19th century and is, is not a part of uh, today or future Mormonism. Right. I And I feel like I came to the same conclusion that the LDS Church has come to. If you look on LDS.org last December, they posted a lengthy historical explanation of polygamy and reaffirmed their view that Mormons believe in monogamy. So mm. I guess I would go along with that. So you, you go with that statement, uh, even though, as Dave points out, that a man can be sealed in the temple to more than one woman. Yes. Okay. I, th- I know of cases where women have been sealed to more than one man as well, and I would consider that sort of a practical solution. Not, um, and, and I don't know what's going to happen after this life, of course, uh, but I see how poly- polygamy could have been valuable during the 19th century. It's hard for me to see um, how it is today. 
We'll have to leave it there out of time. Very interesting book. Uh, it's out from Oxford University Press, Polygamous Wives Writing Club. Paula Kelly Harline delves into the diaries and autobiographies of 29 women who lived polygamy in the mid to uh, late 19th century. Uh, and uh, Paula Harline Kelly, thank you so much. You're welcome. Or uh, Paula Kelly Harline, I got your name wrong. Uh, thanks so much, and I uh, hope you'll join us tomorrow. Uh, we will be talking about the Glass Cliff. Join us tomorrow. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. With the beginning of summer at our doorstep, many of us look out over our green grass yards and dread the coming heat that will endeavor to turn it brown and stale. One might begin to ponder if there is an alternative to these plants that fill our yards and demand so much of our water. Well, in fact, there is. Utah may be a desert, but not one naturally devoid of vegetation. Many plants have evolved to live within the bounds of the climate, insect pests, microbes, and soil types specific to our region. Once established, many native plants need minimal irrigation beyond normal rainfall. And because they have coexisted for eons, natives have developed their own defenses against many pests and diseases, resulting in minimal pesticide use. Backyards, gardens, parks, and roadsides planted with native plants also provide wildlife with a bridge to the natural areas that remain interspersed among our heavily developed communities. As the cornerstone of biological diversity, native plants also do the best job of providing food and shelter for our local animals. Ready to get planting? Here are two natives that would be easy, attractive, and low-maintenance additions to many Utah yards and gardens. Little Leaf Mock Orange is a compact shrub which produces clusters of wonderfully fragrant white blossoms. In the wilds of Utah, it is often found growing in rock crevices and dry, gravelly areas, so it will likely do well in those bare, difficult parts of your yard. It is browsed by mule deer and also provides shelter for native birds. Fire Chalice, alternately known as hummingbird flower, is a low-profile plant with bright red, tube-shaped flowers. The plant's nectar is irresistible to hummingbirds and can help attract a number of native pollinators to your yard. As with all plants, the right native must be matched with the right spot. Thankfully, there are native plants that thrive in every habitat imaginable. And the best thing is, natives include all different types of plants, from mosses and ferns to wildflowers, shrubs, and trees. A little bit of research should help you find the best species for your hot, dry slope or that wet swale in the back, or that dry shade under your trees. For more information on native plants, please visit us online at www.wildaboututah.org. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. This is Utah Public Radio. Time now is 10 o'clock.